0: This is the Daily Signal podcast for Thursday, January 4th. I'm Virginia Allen. Today, we are diving into part two of our climate change podcast series. On the show yesterday, we discussed the history of climate change with David Legates, and we established that, yes, the climate is changing. But now it's time to talk about the cause of why the climate is changing. Climate expert Willie Soon joins us to do just that. Stay tuned for our conversation up next. Conservative women are problematic women. Why? Because we don't adhere to the agenda of the radical left. Every Thursday morning on the Problematic Women Podcast, Kristen Eikammer, Lauren Evans, and me, Virginia Allen, are joined by other conservative women to break down the big issues and news you care about. Whether you're interested in hot takes and conversations on pop culture or what Congress is up to, Problematic Women has you covered. We sort through the news to keep you up to date on the issues that are of particular interest to conservative leaning. That is problematic women. Find problematic women wherever you like to listen to podcasts and follow the show on Instagram. It is my pleasure today to welcome to the show Willie Soon. He serves as a visiting fellow on the Science Advisory Committee for the Center for Energy, Climate and Environment here at the Heritage Foundation. Mr. Soon, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Oh, thank you, Virginia, for doing this. And I think the topic of climate change, as we have just uh, heard from the news in uh, UAE, you know, in uh, Dubai, fossil fuel should be phased out and so on and so forth. It's a big Uh, topic. So my primary theme is indeed that we have to decouple energy policy from this dangerous
0: climate hysteria <laughs> mm-hmm. it's such a critical and important topic to be talking about and I'm really excited to talk with you today about what some of the root causes are of climate change I was very pleased yesterday we we talked about on the show about some of the history of climate change and we established the fact that yes, the climate is changing, um, uh-huh. but I'm excited that we get to talk about some of the causes today. But before we get to that, I was wondering if you could share a little bit of your own background and a bit about your work on the topic of climate change. Sure.
1: Uh, I am uh, what you call the good old average scientist, but scientist here in a very serious sense in the sense that I don't compromise with with all the false, what you call incentives like money, fame, and fortune. So you just focus on data and science. So in that sense, I've been studying climate for almost 33 years now. I was formerly at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics for some 32 years. So now I'm actually uh, forming my own institute. It's called uh, series-science.com. And I am focusing on climate change because, indeed, the topic is very, very scientifically challenging and interesting And throughout my career, I believe that I've cracked a few uh, problems that is very, very long running. So I've really been doing a lot of serious work on this, how the, you know, especially on the the causes and the factors that affect climate change for this long, so 30-some years. And this is why today I feel very uh, happy to be able to chat a, a bit more on details, exactly how and what. So whenever you're ready, I'll just tell you what I know. Because (laughs) I think that the topic has been highly confused, obviously, Mm. because people apparently believe. I mean, science is not about belief. Science is about data. Mm. If people believe that it's the rising carbon dioxide that is the main factors, in fact, it's the predominant factors that affect climate change. And that is wholly untrue. That is such a distorted view that I think it needs to be corrected.
0: Excellent. Well, I'm excited that we get to correct some of those views. And thank you for your willingness to just bring that knowledge that you have. So as I mentioned, we established during a conversation yesterday with David Legates that yes, indeed, the climate is changing. So how much do we know about why the earth goes through these cycles of warming and cooling? What do we know about that?
1: We know quite a bit, actually. But uh, first off, Let's understand one. Let's set the established point. Hmm. The Earth by itself does not, what you call, uh, generate heat. The amount that it generates is actually based on uh, radioactive decay, okay? okay? It's from uranium, thorium, all those things, right? E- even your potassium in your in banana. Uh, but in that sense, we have no energy. So how does the ocean move? How does the tree grow? How does the wind blows You know. Whatever that you want in terms of the earth structure, even the tectonic, like how the mountain move up, you know, Himalaya for example. <clears throat> A lot of these forces and energy are all totally supplied by solar sun. Okay? Uh, that bright yellow star out there. Of course, don't stare into it because it's gonna hurt your eye. <laughs> so in that sense that sun is overwhelmingly the what you call the the governor of the climate system, you know? Okay. Because it's at least in terms of quantified in terms of power the in terms of unit called what it's actually two billion times stronger than than the earth. the earth itself has nothing, basically the radiogenic heat is even ten thousand times smaller, so there's nothing else really even even the what you call the people are now interested in what you call geothermal heating. The geothermal heating is actually also the main source of energy is really also supplied a bit by the sun, right? So in that sense, and then and then there is another very, very important factor that is actually what you call the group like the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, like to what you call, tell people is essentially quiet a bit about this. It's actually the seasonality in the whole climate system. What is the most obvious thing that we know about the Earth, weather and climate system? It's the season, isn't it? Of course, when you move towards the equator or near the tropics, you see less of the effect because you have you have not four seasons, you have actually two seasons, basically. Season, you know, analyzed in the sense of more rain or no rain. Monsoon, that one is because around that region in the tropics and the equator, they're driven by what you call the monsoon changes, which is the land-sea contrast of, of, of the, you know, different imbalance of the heat and therefore drive all the, what you call, circulation of the air and the moisture and the ocean current and things like that. So okay. uh, season is basically caused by what? It's just because we are forced by gravity Earth is forced to go around the sun the sun is not going around Earth so remember that that's, that's the big controversy that we took 400 years to clarify <laughs> uh, and among that even that is because the, the Earth constantly are being perturbed by all these other planets in our climate, uh, solar system Yes. so the orbit. It doesn't go exactly what it is every single year. It does change very, very small, but it changes in a very subtle way. So, for example, uh, the, the Earth may look like a, a, a bit circular, but it also changes slightly more elliptical changes because of forces from Saturn and Jupiter. And then also on, on the axial tilt, because we rotate by our own, that's why we get the day and night, yes? And then the tilt is changing over 40,000-year time scale by about 2 degrees. And if you compare that with Mars, Mars tilts by 20 to 70 degrees because it has no moon around. We have moon to control our tilting. Okay? And then you have another effect called the precession. These are the effects like a spinning top. You know, It's actually the orbit. Like For example, now, the closest distance between Sun and Earth is during Southern Hemisphere summer. right? And then in our Northern Hemisphere winter, it's actually the furthest away. And then, but 11,000 years ago, it was the opposite around. So this is called the precessional effect. These are the three well-known factors. They are known, and it was known since the 1940s, 30s and 40s, by a Serbian uh, engineer by the name of Milutin Milankovic. He basically solved all that problem, essentially showing how the big picture, because back then they were curious. From geology, you actually learn over time, there are some very enormous ice ages being formed, and then you have very, very warm periods, you know, and, and it's just back and forth, back and forth. So, most of that factors are really related to what we call this, it's named after Milankovitch, Milankovitch cycle, the orbital changes. Hmm. And then, on top of that, I got to emphasize because I've been studying the sun for as long as I study the climate. So, the sun itself is a magnetized body, yes? uh, The Earth itself is also a magnetic bar, in a sense. But then the strength of the magnetic field on the Earth is actually 10,000 times smaller. So the sun is a significant magnetic ball of gas. And so with the magnetic field, there are all sorts of uh, uh, structures and features on the sun. The well-known one is the sunspot, right, that many people know, because Galileo, Galilei from uh, Italy, obviously was the first few guys who actually observed this phenomenon, yes? And from that sunspot phenomenon, you realize that this magnetic field is able to modulate how strong or how weak the sunlight is coming out, which means how bright or how dimmer, right? how much dimmer. So that factor, so, okay, you got orbit, you got the intrinsic changes of the sun, and I contend, I contend myself, because after a lot of analysis of data, that this is more than sufficient to explain almost all the, if you like, not not maybe not a hundred thousand years kind of ice cycle, even all the changes of the last thousand years, for example. Hmm. Okay, uh, I think yesterday you probably had spoken about the hockey stick uh, temperature curve. That, but then the reality of the knowledge is that we have a period called Medieval Warm Period, and it's global and it's real. Because myself and Professor David Lages actually published one of the most uh, definitive papers that summarizes all the available evidence, not from thermometer, obviously, because we have, don't have thermometer a thousand years ago, but by studying what you call paleoclimate proxies, right? Paleoclimate proxies just mean something that indirectly is measuring, you know, the climate system, like the temperature, the rainfall, you know, so on and so forth. Some of them even be sensitive to sunshine. Some of them is sensitive to, you know, wind, you know, direction, like sand dune, you can study sand dune property. But for the paleoclimate proxy, the main one are basically what you call tree rings. You know, how how strong, how how thick or how thin the, the width is when the spring comes, you know, this celluloid is forming. So every year you can actually track this back. And then you can have from ocean sediment, sea sediment, you can, you can have a wide variety of information, actually. Hmm. And then there you can actually confirm that medieval warm period that runs from around 800 to about 400 A.D. are actually a relatively warm period. And then from about 1300 onwards, so 14th century, lasting till about, let's say, the beginning of the 20th century, so from about 1900, 1300 to 1900, there's a period called the Little Ice Age. And these are significantly cold times. In fact, why is it called Little Ice Age? Because it's apparently this 600 years or, or, or period during this time. It's actually the coldest of the last 10,000 years, actually. We mm. have came out from an ice age about 20,000 years ago, correct? I mean, Boston, Washington, D.C., we are under the uh, 2 months thick of ice. And that's called the ice age. That's why the coldest period of the last 10,000 years is called Little Ice Age. Mm. I mean... That, that you can tell from historical information, right? I mean, the, the river Thames in London was frozen. They were able to have froze regular cross fair, what they call, you know, on the London. You know, basically now, of course, the, the, the river of London, I mean, Thames River never froze, really. And that shows you that the difference between the climate change during Little Ice Age and present time, for example, mm-hmm. or middle, warm, middle of warm period. So this whole phenomenon, and one, one important fact that I have to clarify is that okay, if you look for the cause, okay, science has a very important thing called causality, yes? Okay. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, if you if you try to claim that uh, uh, lung cancer causes cigarette smoking, you know, that doesn't quite make sense, isn't it? Because <laughs> which one comes first? You have to smoke first to get the lung cancer, isn't it, right? So mm. it's actually the causality is very important. So I want to emphasize, for example, so after a little ice age, what happens? Actually, the climate warms up again. It warms up way, way before the rising of the atmospheric carbon dioxide from the Industrial Revolution, for example. This is a factor that no one wants to actually deeply identify and clarify. But then if you look carefully after, for example, myself and David LeGate and many, many of our colleagues that study this, this natural variability, natural climate variability, we actually realise and able to find evidence that actually it was because the sun was brightening up again, but was brightening up. It was actually deeming quite a bit, especially during a period called the Mondo Minimum in the 17th century. That's where it's from 1645 to 1715. The mm-hmm. Mondo Minimum is related to the sun, which is actually my specialty because I have published a labor of love, a book, a semi-popular book on that, the Mondo Minimum. And that explained that what happened during that time period. I mean, there was a famous saying because Louis XIV was the reigning the Sun King at that time. And then apparently, when he was reigning, the Sun is afraid of him, so all the sunspots disappear. In some sense, it's true because from this 70 years period, there is no sunspots appearing in the northern hemisphere of the Sun. There were a few in the southern hemisphere of the Sun. So it's very, very highly, highly, highly unusual. I have to emphasize. Because if you look at the sun now or the past 200 years, you know that sunspot is changing and going in every 11 years or so. So during the sunspot minimum, when the sunspot disappears, but it, it when you don't have sunspot, it doesn't last for maybe 10 days, 20 days, or 100 days. But this one, over 70 years, we have the sunspot disappear. So modern minimum period is very, very unique. Mm. This is why the it's almost like a fingerprint of the effect of the sun on the climate system. And I I found that the evidence are everywhere except for the IPCC crowd continuing to try to revise history, to try to change stuff, and try to change story, basically. It's just... And and no evidence to defend it. This is part of the reason why, I mean, myself, Legit, and many of the people that on the, what you call, Heritage uh, Climate Science Advisory Board, Mm. Joe Leo. And um, who else is on it? Roy Spencer, Dr. Roy Spencer.
0: It's a great crew. <laughs> yeah, even,
1: yeah, even Professor Stephen Crooning, who wrote that beautiful book called Unsettled. right? I mean, I really, really think that it does take a <laughs> whole village of scientists from all sorts of expertise. I mean, Stephen Crooning is a theoretical physicist, right? I'm also a physicist myself, but I also have experience in engineering. Professor Legate is the actually the rare professor of climatology.
0: Yes, and he
1: has his yes. PhD from climatology, one of those few rare degree in PhD that you know <laughs> rarely many no school offers climatology degree anymore.
0: Well, anyway. Mr. Zuna, I would love just to to jump in here, and I, I think this is so fascinating, and I, so I I want to clarify some of what you've been saying. What so, what you're saying is you know so much of the conversation that we see happening, especially over the past ten, twenty years, everyone is talking about the effects of climate change and how you know things like CO2 emissions um, are causing climate change, things like the number of people on the planet are attributing to climate change. But you're saying we actually have to look outside our planet to see the real effects. And you're saying that the sun and what's happening with the sun, what's happening with Earth's rotation around the sun, that that in your research proves to be really the core reason for climate change, correct?
1: Yes, that's, uh, that's the answer, basically. And then, by the way, I mean, I know you want to talk about the Earth, but if the sun is causing the Earth to change, yes? I mean, that's, let's call it a hypothesis, yes? Then, don't you think that, what is the implication? Can we see it anywhere else? Yes, we can. We saw it on Mars, we can see it in Neptune, we can see it in, you know, interplanetary phenomena, you know? So the sun activity does come come and go, right? Weakened and stronger and weak, you know, and weaker. So... This is quite consistent. Mm. That is another important feature about science, is that you're not only able to sort of, uh, you know, uh, be, be internally consistent. You know, you have to really have this picture. And then, whereas if you start talking about CO2, it just doesn't do anything. That's part of the problem. I've been looking for the possible fingerprint of the CO2 on the Earth climate variable. Anyone you pick, anyone. Temperature, precipitation ocean acidification, polar bear, hurricane, I don't know what have you. you, ice, even even ice, you know, glaciers, for example. Glaciers were melted away <laughs> because the sun started to warm, uh, started to get brighter and provide more solar energy to the climate system. I mean, that's how little ice age, all the glaciers in Europe, disappeared because of that, because it, it, it built to a maximum size. That's why it's called little ice age. You know, you can see in the Alps, I mean, glaciers are driving down to the village and destroying churches, you know, during one of the minimum periods, for example, right? I mean, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Yes, mm. that the the green, so-called greenhouse gas, carbon dioxide and even methane, ridiculous, because methane is about a thousand times even less significant. So and then, yet, they want to mm. they want to promote that as the, what you call the satanic
0: gas. That's a very wrong notion and, and
1: incorrect, I have to say, scientifically, just unsupportable.
0: So then, Mr. Soon, are there are there any factors related to climate change that human beings can control?
1: Well, you can say that a few things that we can control is what you call the normal issues about air pollution, for example, right? I mean, we when we burn fossil fuel, there are many side effects, obviously. And then I do want to remember, we burn it by necessity, right? We need energy, we need electricity, right? And but then we have technology to solve a lot of these problems. For example, the particulate emission, you know, or, or well, put it this way, smoke. You know, the phenomenon that's famous in Los Angeles. I don't know if you are old enough to understand the phenomenon of smoke. Now, in the seventies, is all over the place. You cannot see anything because, or London fog, actually, is one of the well-known phenomena. That one is from clear burning, and then all these particulates, you know, glue to sulfur and things like that. But then now, now. What do, what do we do? Do we want to choke ourselves to death? No one is doing that. We are all trying to be sensible environmentalists and, and, and just living in earth, in earth, you know, in in harmony, really, in some good harmony in, with the environment and ecology. So yes, there are stuff like that. But then those are all basically completely, but you call, cool, reasonable that we do that. That we have a lot of this pollution control uh, uh, technology, isn't it? Right.
0: So then. So yes, I mean there hmm. are
1: things like that. So. But carbon dioxide, I'm very sorry. It's just not doing anything. I mean, it's it's one of the I mean, worst yet. I have to remind everybody, sorry that I keep repeating, because <laughs> it's the gas of life. The only evidence we have, by the way, we do have an evidence. What is the impact of the rising carbon dioxide so far on the planet system? It's not on the temperature, it's not on the rainfall, it's not on the hurricane, it's not on anything, or tornado. It's actually on greening the planet. Mm. The NASA satellite and the European satellite, We've been able to demonstrate and show that the last 20 to 30, 40 years or so, the planet has been greener. Places, the marginal region near the desert has been growing greener too. So, I mean, and that mainly because, plants. when you have more carbon dioxide, plants are able to utilize water in a much more efficient way because the stomata, the, you know, those tiny holes behind the back of the leaves, they close it. So the water loss is much more less substantial. So they are able to use water in more efficient way when you have more carbon dioxide. So this is why some of the, why cause the margin of the uh, desert region around the world are greener now. I mean, of course, some people may not like this thing. I have no idea. But all I know is that it does look more positive in terms of productivity and so on and so forth, right? If you look, measure in certain index, you know, in terms of greenness and all that stuff. So, in, in, the, in, in this way, it's truly an outrageous sort of a misunderstanding and a grave misunderstanding. I sure hope that some policymaker will make some use of this and then sort of openly debate these issues or discuss this issue before any. This is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Remember, I first started by saying that we have to decouple energy policy, which we really need okay, to power the, the world engines, right? For, for business, economy, everything. Agriculture, all kinds of things. Decouple that from the climate hysteria that appears to be mostly psychological, in my view, because the data just doesn't bear out. Even the UN IPCC, if you ask Professor Stephen Kooning, that part of his book that becomes so famous because he actually used every evidence from IPCC reports and then looked through it carefully, especially in the extreme weather that they say, oh, more tornado, more drought, more heat wave, more, more cold wave, whatever. He just never find the evidence. He just concluded it's just not there. Mm-hmm. Even the sea level scare is all not there. This is why that most of the scientists, serious scientists like us, who actually have no, what you call, <laughs> major constraint, meaning meaning that you have to depend on all your funding from, let's say, the government funding, that you will actually have to quiet quiet down a bit. Like You cannot speak so freely because you're afraid that you know, it might affect the grant, not even for yourself, maybe for your whole department, your whole university, mm, that mm-hmm. kind, of so on and so forth. So that there, uh, there is this type of what you call not science kind of factors involved. Also, in terms of in terms of this popularity of carbon dioxide being the dominant gas of climate change, it's just not true. It ain't so. I'm so I apologize to anyone who disagree with that, but let's all look through the evidence and also don't like this message because. Fact is fact, science is science. So you cannot deny this much of the evidence that we have learned over the past, you know, 40 to 50 years at least, yeah.
0: right, Mr. Soon? This is incredibly fascinating, and I really appreciate just your insight in breaking this down um, and the role that you know you just don't hear that talked about in among the media, among press, among reporting on on the issue of climate change. Is that effect? of the sun. This is very fascinating. I want to encourage all of our listeners to visit the Heritage Foundation website so that they can keep up, Mr. Soon, with the work that you're doing. But I truly appreciate your time today. And thank you for being part of our climate change podcast series here at The Daily Signal.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And that's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks for being with us for part two of our climate change podcast series. If you missed part one, make sure to go back and catch the conversation with David Legates. And also make sure that you catch The Daily Signal's top news around 5 p.m. this afternoon, where we bring you the top news of the day to keep you in the know about what's going on in our world. And if you haven't done so, take just a moment to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you like to listen to podcasts or across all podcast platforms, and we would greatly appreciate hearing your feedback and seeing those five-star ratings and reviews roll in. Have a great rest of your Thursday. We will see you right back here at 5 p.m. for our Top News Edition.
1: The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation.